Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, we also learned that COVID booster shots are coming this fall. The Biden administration has called for boosters to be available for those that are fully vaccinated with Pfizer or Moderna eight months after their second shot. With the Delta variant, the coronavirus is still too widespread and too transmissible, and the outcome of the pandemic seems pretty certain. The virus is not going away and will be endemic. Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic, joins us for how we're going to have to live with the coronavirus. The vaccines still protect really well against hospitalizations and death, but it is pretty clear that the vaccine is not effective right now against Delta as it was when we were seeing in the clinical trials. So the rationale that is coming from the Biden administration is that we want to boost people back up to kind of a level where we feel more confident in it. I think the other fear is that, you know, maybe it's still protecting really well against serious disease now, but where is this going to look maybe another six months or eight months from now? You know, I think like in the U.S., we certainly have the shots. In fact, we have more shots than people are willing to take them right now. But I think that's actually maybe one of the other kind of bigger picture things missing here is that a third shot will undoubtedly help boost up the immunity of people who take it. But the first shot for someone who has not been vaccinated is going to make much, much bigger of a difference. So should we be focusing their efforts on getting first shot to more people? And I think the other big picture question is the rest of the world. So much of the world still does not have enough access to vaccines to vaccinate everyone even once. So this is really, in some ways, reflecting how we in the U.S. are very lucky to be awash in vaccines. It would certainly help, but is it maybe the best use of a single dose of vaccine? Probably not. Right, exactly. And as you mentioned, just the response to Delta, rising cases, rising hospitalizations. You know, if you are going to get this third dose, it does have to be from the same vaccine that you took before. So Pfizer or Moderna, people that got Johnson & Johnson will have to wait. They're still looking at the data for that to see what they want to do. But the inclination seems to be that people that got Johnson and Johnson will also need a booster shot. All of this goes to say is kind of how we're going through this. Sarah, about a year ago, you wrote an article talking about how the coronavirus is probably never going to go away. It will become something that we call endemic, something that we end up living with. You wrote a follow-up article to this, kind of how everything we've gone through basically confirms this almost to this point now. Things have not gotten much better and we're still there. And, and we hope that through natural immunity, through vaccinations, the coronavirus just kind of becomes more of a common cold thing like other coronaviruses have done in the past. Yeah, that's right. The coronavirus is still never going away. I think that's even more clear or clearer now than it was a year ago. So I think the reason I would say that seems, you know, even more unavoidable now is because the virus has just spread it's so through so much of the world. And we're also seeing how it is changing, right? Like we're seeing these new variants and with Delta, there's like some better ability to slightly better ability to reinfect or to cause breakthrough infections in people who are vaccinated, which is, as we were talking about, one reason the Biden administration is pushing for boosters. I think we're going through like a very confusing period where things are very in flux. I wanted to kind of think about what the long term is of like what living with this virus is like. And I don't think that like currently confusing period is going to last forever, at least. Eventually, we'll kind of settle down to some sort of more stable, steady state where the virus kind of follows a more predictable pattern, very likely, or possibly a seasonal pattern to see what the way we see with the flu or with other coronaviruses. There are four other coronaviruses that cause a common cold. 
And we don't know if this coronavirus is going to behave exactly like the ones that already exist. But we have kind of just as like a one possible benchmark for how it might look in the long term. With the common cold coronaviruses, we sort of all get them when we're a kid. We probably exposed to them like before we were two or three years old. And then we always get reinfected. Immunity to coronaviruses does not last very long. But what happens is because we always get it as a kid, it's pretty mild. As we're seeing with COVID-19, when kids get it, it tends to be really mild and asymptomatic. So what tends to happen with other coronaviruses is that um, we get it as a kid, we get reinfected, but that's also mild because our bodies have seen it before. Maybe the virus changes a little bit. Maybe your immunity also wanes. We might get reinfected again. That kind of boosts back the immunity back up for a while. And then maybe after some time, you might get reinfected again. But each time these reinfections, you're not starting from zero. So it's going to be milder right. than if you saw it for the first time. And if you are vaccinated or it's happening in children, that's not as serious as what's happening now with COVID-19. The problem with COVID-19 is that we're seeing novel coronavirus in adults who have never seen this virus before. And that's what is causing all the serious illness right. and the death. And that's the whole point, as you were mentioning, you know, that pattern that we have dealt with coronaviruses before. The whole point of getting the vaccines going was to help us in that, not to completely eliminate it or, you know, stop it completely. It was basically to help us from getting severe infections, help us from dying yeah. from it. So we're kind of in that position right now. That's why we're trying to get so many people vaccinated. The other component to it, as you mentioned in the article too, is the psychological transition. You know, once this does become endemic, something that we live with, we're going to have to think about it differently as a way that we live for it. You know, We've been in this inflection point right now where so many people are on so many sides. We're not in agreement on what it's going to look like later, but eventually we'll kind of get there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think one thing that's going to just feel a little bit strange at first when we come out of this pandemic is that, you know, in this middle of this pandemic or in this emergency, we're all trying to avoid this virus. But in the long run, as this virus becomes endemic, as it continues to circulate, we've seen how transmissible it is now. Like, it's very unlikely that all of us or even most of us can avoid this virus for the rest of our lives. So we should prepare to be exposed to it at some point. And that's fine, right? If you've been vaccinated, if you've had immunity to this virus, like reinfection is not going to be as bad as like an initial first infection in, say, an elderly adult who's like never seen the virus before. And that's just probably how it's going to be over time. Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. We're also seeing governors in Florida, Missouri, and Texas begin pushing expensive COVID antibody treatments instead of cheap masks. States are setting up and staffing infusion centers with the hopes of keeping people out of hospitals. Florida's Surgeon General issued a ruling for anyone to be able to take Regeneron's monoclonal antibody treatment without a doctor's prescription. For more on how these governors are pushing for COVID cocktails over masks, we'll speak to Dan Goldberg, healthcare reporter at Politico. I think it's really interesting to note that some of the governors who have been most against mitigation measures like masks or social distancing are now the ones who are most eager to tout the advantages of these antibody treatments. And while, of course, we want everybody who gets sick to be treated, there is an element of, a, you know, the uh, expression turned on its head, a pound of cure seems to be better than an ounce of prevention. In this case. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing because, you know, these treatments aren't cheap and we're trying to keep people out of hospital and uh, medical settings to prevent the system from getting overburdened. But Regeneron is one of these and, uh, mon monoclonal antibody treatments that, uh, you know, these things need to be administered 
through IV by professionals, uh, you know, so it, it kind of complicates things. It seems like more than more than it would just to go get your vaccine. Right. It certainly is more complicated. It, it, the, the treatment was bought by the federal government, so it's free to the patient. But of course, it is more expensive. Somebody paid for it down the line. And it is more of a hassle. And once you get sick or infected with COVID, you're more likely to spread it to somebody else. So obviously, in public health, in any kind of scenario, you want to prevent getting sick in the first place. What's interesting about what has happened is the White House, the Biden administration, had been pushing these antibody treatments, reminding states like Arkansas and Missouri, where COVID was really raging, to sort of tout these treatments because the theory is, listen, if you get it, we don't want you to go to the hospital. And these treatments are a way to keep people with mild symptoms from developing worsening symptoms. The problem was it was never meant to be a either or with things like masks. They're certainly not the vaccines. And so on the one hand, you have Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida touting these monoclonal antibodies, while at the same time fighting with school districts who are trying to mandate masks to stop the spread of the virus in the first place. On top of all that, I don't want to shy anybody away from receiving these treatments because they've been shown to work. And, and if you're severely ill, I mean, you, you want something like this. But people talk about the vaccines and how they're not fully authorized. Regeneron, one of the main ones, right, is still under emergency use authorization. It still hasn't been fully approved by the FDA. So those are all other things to consider for people that are going to get these type of treatments. The bottom line is this. One of the big problems we've had from the beginning of COVID is that many people in this country don't take it seriously. Either they believe it's a hoax outright or that the consequences of COVID are not that serious. How many times have you heard people say, well, it's just like the flu or it's no worse than the common cold? And one of the concerns, just from a messaging point, is that if you tout a treatment like this, and we want people to get it, but the concern is, see, it's nothing more than a cold. You can get sick, you get a little medicine, you'll be better. Without really people understanding that it is an infusion center often, you're going to be at, you know, having a needle in your arm for two hours or an hour with follow-up care afterwards. And not only is the treatment complicated, as you said, but you may have spread it to somebody who gets very sick or possibly dies. And so that is really, you know, anything that sort of confirms people's beliefs that this isn't such a big deal, so why should I bother getting vaccinated, is something that the White House is very concerned with. So what are what specific action are we seeing in these various states? Because I'm seeing Florida Surgeon General kind of issued a blanket prescription, basically saying you can receive these treatments without a doctor's prescription. And then, as you mentioned, these infusion centers. So states are having to set up and staff them so that people can get the treatments. Right. And Mississippi, I should say, did the same thing. Also gave a standing order so that you can receive it without a prescription. And the cake in some of these states is already baked, right? I mean, if people should go get vaccinated in Mississippi, but the truth is the vaccines take weeks before they take effect. So what Mississippi and uh, Louisiana and Arkansas and Missouri are all trying to do right now is what can we do immediately to stem the tide? I think where public health officials are sort of smacking the palm, their palms against their heads is, well, why don't you promote masks? Why don't you tell people that going to the state fair may not be a good idea right now, especially if COVID is raging in that county? And so it's not an either or so much as a both and. And I think that in many of these southern states is what you aren't seeing. One of the most recent recipients of of this type of treatment, these antibody treatments, was Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who just tested positive 
And uh, he was, he had his vaccination to my knowledge as well. Yes, he did. Uh, he got vaccinated on television back months ago. I, I can't remember when. And it is important, you know, one of the points that Governor DeSantis in Florida makes is that these treatments are for people who have been vaccinated, too. Uh, the vaccines, as we know, are not perfect or they don't work 100 percent of the time. Governor Abbott has some pre-existing health conditions that make him particularly susceptible to COVID or severe effects from COVID, I should say. And so it's good that somebody who might be in a situation like Abbott where they've been vaccinated, get infected with COVID anyway, have the ability to take advantage of this. Again, where the public health officials are going to smack their, their palms against their head is saying that Greg Abbott was at large outdoor rallies and events, actually indoor rallies uh, and events, where he put himself, even though he was vaccinated, he put himself at additional risk because there wasn't a lot of mask wearing. There wasn't a lot of social distancing. So could the governor of Texas possibly have done more to help him prevent getting infected in the first place? Probably. Is it a good thing that he has the access to these treatments? Absolutely. But again, it's not, it shouldn't be either or. They could have been a way to do both. Right, exactly. So, yeah, we'll see, um, you know, what happens if uh, we want more people to have access to as much help as they can. And, you know, maybe in places like Alabama where there's no ICU beds or very few, maybe some infusion centers or something can help people stay out of those uh, the health system that way. So we'll uh, continue to monitor all of that. Dan Goldberg, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And finally for this week, older millennials are beginning to enter their high earning years. But for many, it doesn't feel like it. With a higher debt to income ratio and delaying home ownership and having families, these higher earning years might not provide the financial security they were hoping for. For more on how millennials are still struggling despite making more, we'll speak to Julia Carpenter, personal finance reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, so you already mentioned some of it, thinking about how millennials were entering this period of their life with some different obligations, different than previous generations. They're carrying a debt-to-income ratio that's 23% higher than previous generations or 23% higher than expected based on previous generations. We owe a lot of this to the student debt crisis, of course, but also millennials were very much impacted by both recessions, the Great Recession of 2008, as well as the post-pandemic-induced recession. So even though we're seeing really strong wage growth coming out of this pandemic, a really strong labor market, millennials entering this high-earning year period are still trying to catch up from those previous hindrances. What's the age range that we're looking at for these high-earning years? High-earning years typically fall between 35 to 44 or 45 to 54. But we see the biggest jump in income when somebody moves from the 25 to 34 bracket to the 35 to 44 bracket. And that's usually because education starts to pay off, advanced degrees start to pay off, or people get promotions. They move into senior levels at their company. They've kind of chosen their industry. They're in a career that maybe a career change had benefited from. They're sort of hitting their stride. And what kind of increases are they seeing? Because you had a couple statistics in 1986, the weekly earnings jumped 16% for people moving into that bracket. We have some numbers for Gen X and then even for 2020. So what are the gains looking like? 
Yeah, I mean, when you move from that 25 to 34 age bracket to the 35 to 44 bracket, it's usually a pretty significant jump. You're seeing a 20% jump, like I said, 16% in 1986, 20% for Gen X in 2005, 22% in 2020. And then what happens is you start making more money and then you will tip up a little bit more again into those high earning years in the 30s and 40s. And then you sort of plateau and decrease as you're entering retirement. As we kind of been mentioning with the theme, though, you know, a lot of older millennials entering this phase right now might not feel like they're making that much more. There's a lot of other things right. going on with them. Cost of childcare you focused on in the piece. I mean, that's huge for so many families. I think someone said it's like taking on another mortgage in some cases. Childcare and nursery school are rising at roughly twice the pace of inflation. And that's been happening since 2000. So it's these really high prices people are paying for childcare and nursery school. So that's eating into those wage increases. You know, the woman I spoke with who you mentioned, you know, she referred to it as a mortgage payment. She crossed a personal income threshold. She felt really good about it, but then pretty much all of that extra pay went to childcare for her first child. And then her second raise, it went to childcare for her second child. So we're seeing more and more of these bigger ticket items eating into those wage increases. And purchasing power is also the same as it it was 40 years ago. And in some ways, people look at that and say, oh, that's great. Our purchasing power for our salaries hasn't decreased, but also our purchasing for power for our salaries hasn't increased either. So it puts these older millennials entering this period in really a tough spot. Stress was another thing that you focused on in the piece. And, you know, I couldn't get, uh, keep thinking, you know, more money, more problems, right? You're making that more money, but things keep changing. And uh, one of the people you spoke to too said that, yeah, you're, you're making higher, more money, but You might be working longer hours. There's more stress associated with it. There's a bunch of surveys of millennials saying that financial stress is really high and figures in their daily lives. I think a lot of that we've discussed with the pandemic, you know, this sort of never ending dread, this drawn out trauma, burnout, and these older millennials are really feeling the effects of all of that. They're also in sort of a weird period in their careers. Baby boomers are living longer and they're also working longer. So that has cascading effects. That means baby boomers working in senior positions aren't retiring, which means Gen X isn't advancing, which means millennials aren't advancing to those other positions. So it's a weird period of time in which they're stalled in their careers. They're entering this very high earning period or supposedly this high earning period feeling more of their money being eaten up by these daily necessities and also kind of trying to plan for the future at the same time. You mentioned the article too. There's plenty of job openings right now, but some of these senior positions, as you mentioned, need to be vacated so that the older millennials can start moving up into that. And there is a lot of job openings right now, but a lot of people don't want some of those jobs because it might be a lateral move or a move beneath them, let's say. So that kind of figures into a lot of that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the data in the third quarter of 2020, about 28.6, nearly 30 million baby boomers said that they were out of the workforce because of retirement. So on its face, that number looks huge and and it's increased. It's increased. You know, that's almost 30 million baby boomers. But then when you look at labor force participation, labor force participation for workers over 60 has increased. So people are working longer. We already know millennials have said that they plan to work longer, both because millennials are looking for meaning in their jobs, as many have reported, but also because they feel like they're going to need to work longer in order to make it work financially. Julia Carpenter, personal finance reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for this weekend. 
Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.